Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. around the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and we're going to be, I don't know, we're going to call the theme miscellaneous or um, whatever, yeah. starting with one of our favorite companies, one of our favorite people, Ethan Fritch of the uh, Burlap and Barrel Spice Company. Um, he's become so famous that I noted that he was listed in an eater um, in their section called Dining Diary. So everybody was interested in everything he put in his mouth. Um, Ethan is, is a lot of fun. Let's listen to him. Ethan Frisch, it's been a while since we first met and talked, which was when I first discovered your, discovered your company, your spice company called Burlap and Barrel. And since then, we've actually been um, interviewing your partner about Ori. specific yeah. programs and stuff, Ori, I suddenly realized when I, I got on my in my inbox an Eater article and realized that you are now the, the big celebrity that everybody's hanging on every mouthful. <laughs> How well, did this I, happen? I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't go that far. It was a uh, <laughs> Grub Street diet uh, column that I wrote, uh, you know, Grub Street being the New York Magazine food online food publication um, about what I what I ate in in the course of my regular daily life in New York City for a few days. Right. Yeah. So you wrote it yourself. I wrote it myself. Yeah. Okay. Hold, hold, Very on, good. Now hold on a second. There's something we missed out here. We we have n- never actually met Ethan. We have never actually met Ori. But we feel like but we feel like we know them better than most of our best friends. <laughs> just just because <laughs> you know everything I, I ate for a few days. Yeah, I mean the nice thing about that column is that uh, you know you, you're 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 encouraged and it it's easy to to include details from your day to day life and you know not just what you're eating obviously but also who you're eating it with and where you're going and why you decided to go to that restaurant or cook that dish. So. Uh, yeah. it, it was it was a lot of fun to write. Well, but I mean, I do think that you have a certain celebrity status now. I mean, for a while we dealt with chefs that were celebrity chefs. Now you're also a chef, but um, I the whole institution of celebrity chefs has sort of dis, disassembled, uh, and and yet you're coming back as a celebrity in a different guise. You're actually a um, a, a supplier of specialty food. Uh, just for the listeners that probably missed the, the first time or may have missed the first time we talked, what exactly does Burlap and Barrel do? Sure. So Burlap and Barrel is a single-origin spice company, one of the first uh, in the country, if, if not in the world. Um, we work with small farms in now 20 different countries. Uh, we are a public benefit corporation, which is a hybrid for-profit, non-profit. And so our, our goal is to connect smallholder spice farmers with high-value markets, which means we find farmers growing really interesting things, whether that has to do with the varietal that they're growing, their agricultural practice, 
uh, something about the way that this, the spice is handled post-harvest, whether it's smoked or fermented or dried in a specific way. And then uh, we buy and import their spices into the U.S., um, which we sell on our website, com, to home cooks across the country, as well as uh, all kinds of great restaurants and uh, manufacturers of artisanal food products. And you also do collaborations, because I think that's sort of one of the newest directions, right? Many collaborations, yeah. And I mean, to your point about, uh, you know, a, a new type of food celebrity, first of all, I'm definitely not a food celebrity. I'm not anywhere close <laughs> to it. But we, we have had, uh, you know, we have had fun working with some food celebrities uh, to create collaborations. Some of them are chefs. Some of them are sort of food personalities in other forms. But, um, you know, custom spice blends. Uh, you know, everybody has their their sort of go-to combination of spices that they love to cook with at home, and and so we realized we could make those blends for people and and bottle them and put them on our site, and that's been a a lot of fun as well as an area of of growth for the company in the last couple of years. Well, I mean, I think I I ought to um, just come right out and say it that you're probably our most favorite spice company uh, in in the world. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, everything's so fresh, everything's such high quality, and and you are the nicest guys in the world. So, so it all comes together. Now, yeah, I, yeah, thanks. I wouldn't say that that your palate is exactly like the average person's palate. It's much broader than that. I mean, you are trained as a chef. Um, you yeah. actually, yeah, I mean, that's number one. You, you've been exposed to multicultural um, cuisines and, and, and a, a very developed um, taste buds and palate. You lived um, in uh, Afghanistan. Um, yeah. uh, your, your in-laws are Afghanistani, right? Yep. Okay. And um, what else differentiates your your selection of, of products yes, and how you it's approach a, it. It's a good question. I think, uh, you know, obviously everybody eats, um, but there's a difference when you eat professionally uh, or taste professionally, I should say, versus, you know, when, when you eat uh, like a normal person. Um, yeah. My wife eats like a normal person. I eat like a crazy person because that's my <laughs> job, because that's my life. Yeah, well, and, this is my big just, objection to the fact that everybody's supposed to be able to be a critic. I mean, I, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Me. I mean, it's it's a lot of it, it. First of all, it's not always very fun because you're tasting things to sort of understand and appreciate the flavor in the way that you might, uh, I don't know, to sort of cons- go to the theater or or listen to a piece of music or or sort of try to unpack something. Um, and understand how it compares to other similar uh, works of art, I guess, um, in the world. So there's a lot of very uh, conscious tasting. As I'm eating, I'm thinking a lot about And it can be very annoying to your dining partner. (laughs) Oh, it's incredibly annoying to your dining partner. Um, My wife is very tolerant, but, uh, yeah, even she gets sick of it. Uh, So, I mean, that's, that's... some of what's happening is just the difference between being a professional and being being an amateur in food. Um, and then, I mean, that, that also obviously leads into how we make decisions about the spices that we source because we taste everything, of course, before we uh, bring it into our lineup. Um, and what we're looking for across the board is is a spice that, that changes the way that you think about that spice. So 
you know, if you taste our royal cinnamon or you taste our wild cumin from Afghanistan, they, they will taste similar to other cinnamons and cumins you've tasted, but they will change the way that you think about those spices just because of the intensity, the complexity, um, and that's what we're trying to do across the board. So we do a lot of tasting, Ori and myself and our director of operations, uh, of samples from around the world, you know, farmers we're considering working with, but also all kinds of other things. Uh, any interesting food product, I buy all kinds of, of wacky things uh, that I find on the Internet just to taste what other people are doing and, and what the sort of, uh, I guess you could call it the cultural aesthetic in food or what kinds of flavors are trendy and um, what are people cooking with now versus five years ago? What are they going to be cooking with five years from now? Uh, those are all the questions that we're trying to answer on a daily basis. And what, what's an adaptogen? An adaptogen is a medicinal plant or a part of a medicinal plant that is supposed to support healthy executive function, which, which is the, you know, the regular functioning of your brain. Um, and some adaptogens are better for sleep. Some adaptogens are better for sort of general energy. Um, but they, they tend to have a wide or potentially have a wide spectrum of uh, impacts. Um, and, you know, I think with the, with the uh, frustration with, uh, pharmaceutical medicine and, and industrial medicine, people have been turning towards uh, traditional practices of plant-based medicine. And adaptogens uh, seem to be a category that exists across cultures and across um, across traditions. So there are adaptogens in Ayurvedic, you know, South Asian medicine. There are adaptogens in traditional traditional Chinese and Southeast Asian uh, medicines. Um, but uh, I've been experimenting on myself a little bit, as you've probably read in the article, with a couple of adaptogens, um, one called ashwagandha, which is a root. Oh, yes. Uh, Tell us about that. Uh, you know, I... I do, <laughs> First of all, you have to be able to pronounce uh, it. I don't, <laughs> you have to be able to pronounce it. Uh, ashwagandha is one um, that I had read a study uh, about um, ashwagandha for insomnia, and I often have trouble falling asleep, and so I decided to give it a try. Um, so I, I looked up the particular ashwagandha extract that was used in that study and, and found uh, some gummies and some uh, capsules made with that, uh, that type of ashwagandha extract. I'll take that. There's another one that I've been trying, which is a, a tea called Jaogulan, uh, which is from Southeast Asia, um, and you drink it like you would a, an oolong tea or something. So it's, um, you know, you put it, put it in some hot water as an infusion and, no, your, your wife tasty. is not, not into things in quite the same way, you report. Uh, not into these things. She's into other things, <laughs> but, but not so much the food things. I, you know, I, I just, I like, um, I like trying new flavors. I like trying new ingredients. Uh, it's a, you know, a little hobby in addition to being my, my job. Now, in, in this, I keep calling it your um, dining diary. I used to do a column called Dining Diary, so it came to mind. Um, Did you – I was trying to determine if geography was a central part of what you were doing in this article. Uh, It it absolutely was. I live in Queens and Jackson Heights, which is an amazing neighborhood for food as well as for many other things. And um, I was also asked by by the editor – to focus on Queens restaurants because, you know, they tend to get a little less love than the Manhattan yeah. uh, restaurants. And that was really easy for me. I would have done that anyway because uh, I love my neighborhood and, and eat out a lot. 
Um, Jackson Heights is one of the most diverse communities in the world uh, in terms of countries of origin, in terms of languages spoken, um, and, uh, you know, then in terms of restaurants as well. And so uh, there, I, I, I can walk the last to... time, and the only time I was ever in Queens was when I was in college, I think. Oh, yeah. The last how, time, how, yeah, I mean, which I, is a long time ago. I, I was, it's I was changed a lot. Then. Did we did we talk about this already? The, first, the second second time that we met was in was, was Jackson Heights was on the way. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned that. Um, yeah, I mentioned that, but off air, not on not on the recording. Well, there you go, listeners. This is a romantic story. The romantic story of <laughs> Anne and Peter Haig. Peter Peter being stuck in West Lafayette, Indiana for a holiday he didn't know anything about called <laughs> Memorial Day and and this stupid woman Miss Ann said well why don't you come to Long Island we're going to be there for the weekend <laughs> so I got all these instructions about how, how I was supposed to fly to LaGuardia then take a train to Woodside Queens get on and then we'll meet you at the other end. And I, for some reason, I had faith. <laughs> so she was there. It's all her fault. And, right. and the rest is history, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. Now, um, of the, I mean, do you think that from this article that you wrote, that people are going to be making expeditions to these places in Queens? I hope so, uh, or at the very least, uh, you know, a visit to the neighborhood, uh, check out some of the restaurants that I mentioned, or obviously many of the others that I, I didn't. I could only eat at so many places in a couple of days, especially in the middle of a blizzard. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there are, you know, there are restaurants from, from dozens of countries I can walk to, incredible Tibetan food, Nepali food, Indian, Bengali, Pakistani, as well as you know, Filipino and Thai and Mexican and Colombian and Ecuadorian. It's really just like, uh, you know, almost every, any country or any cuisine you can imagine. Doesn't Lydia Bastianich live in Queens? Doesn't. Her restaurant used to be in Queens, whether it's the first restaurant she had. I think she lives in Queens because she does her PBS show from her kitchen. I think. Anyhow. can you just run through, I mean, we can't cover the whole article, that's for sure, but some of the, the most interesting of the places, um, they're not really a kind of mainstream places where where you um, decided to eat and, and to uh, specify in your article. But could you just tell us some standouts and, and why sure. you're in love with them? Go ahead. Sure. Uh, you know, they they uh, they wind up being pretty mainstream for Jackson Heights, which is one of the reasons that I love living here. But um, uh, I had lunch at one of my favorite places in the neighborhood, which is a Tibetan restaurant called Fayul, P-H-A-Y-U-L. It's very close to the Jackson Heights Roosevelt Avenue subway station. They actually have two locations directly across the street from each other um, because the, the, the first location, which is very small, was so popular that they, uh, they expanded the restaurant across the street. Um, Tibetan food has some really interesting influences from Chinese cooking, not surprisingly. Yeah, tell so us find, what it is, um, Tibetan, because yeah, I'm not find, sure. 
you'll find dumplings, which are called momos, uh, with, with various stuffings, usually a, uh, either a ground beef or a potato and veggie, kind of like a samosa stuffing, but in a steamed dumpling skin. It's not vegan, um, uh, the f- Tibetan cooking has all kinds of um, veggie and meat uh, ingredients. It's not exclusively vegan. Okay. Um, they they make a bean curd, so, you know, sort of a tofu, but they make it from mung beans, and it has this uh, really incredible sort of jiggly, uh, squishy texture. <laughs> it doesn't sound <laughs> very appetizing when I put it like that, but it's really a, a, a magical ingredient. Um and so they have sort of a cold version of, of that with uh, soy sauce and vinegar. They also have a hot stir-fried version of that with beef and, and kind of a spicy sounds good, sort of, um, pepper, paprika, and cinnamon and other things in the sauce. Uh, sort of a really flavorful sauce for the stir-fried uh, mung bean curd. Um, I also had lunch at a great little, uh, I guess you could call it a snack bar, inside the Jackson Heights Roosevelt Avenue subway station. Yeah, exactly. It's a, a Yum Cafe. It's a Burmese restaurant. Um, and they do all kinds of interesting salads, mostly sort of colder room temperature. They have some soups as well. But my favorite is the tea leaf salad, which. Uh, yeah, I like tea leaf with, salad. I thought it was Chinese. Yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah, you know, I think there are, are versions of these dishes that exist sort of, you know, regardless of, of national borders. Oh, these days, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's a delicious dish. But I like that, too. Tea leaves, all kinds of crunchy, flavorful, sort of fried beans and dried shrimp and uh, sometimes yeah. peanuts or other things all mixed together. It's really delicious. Of course, I like that, too. But, of course, I'm also not a typical palate. <laughs> right. But, so, go ahead. So what, what else would you... Um, uh, one of my absolute, another absolute favorite restaurants in the neighborhood is a little um, Indian a restaurant called Raja Sweets and Fast Food. Uh, that restaurant is all vegetarian, and they make, as the name would suggest, they make sweets, and then they make um, some kind of Indian roadside or street snacks and uh, and some lunch platters. Um, so they always have a half dozen curries and stews that they've made. Uh, they make one of the only chai masalas in the neighborhood. There are lots of places to get uh, milk tea, chai, uh, but mostly not made with spices, and, and Raja makes it with spices, which, of course, you know, being a spice guy, I really love. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, a, a, I think, a, a highlight, a destination. If somebody's coming to Jackson Heights looking for an interesting place to eat, come get a samosa chat or a lunch tally platter at Raja. I'll meet you there. Um, we went to, you know, Queens, as you probably know, it's famous for its classic New York diners, especially on yes. Northern Boulevard, which is not far from me. Um, and so we also had a, a nice dinner at the Jack's Inn, uh, which is in Jackson Heights, but spelled oh. J-A-X space I-N-N, Jack's Inn. And what did you have um, there? Uh, I had, you know, classic New York diner food. We were there for dinner, of course, so my wife got uh, chocolate chip banana pancakes. Um, and I had a Greek salad. <laughs> that was our that was our dinner at Jackson. Now, um, back to your your spice business. Well, no, I have a question to ask first. I mean, I think because of the pandemic, a lot of the um, less known um, 
uh, cuisines, which we're not supposed to call ethnic now. I forget what we're supposed to call them. But at any rate, they've had a chance to shine and flourish because of the pandemic. Do you think this is a, a, a lasting change in the foodscape? I do, absolutely. I think the pandemic sort of shined a light on them, but, but um, you know, as immigrant populations have been growing in the U.S., uh, our food landscape has, has increased in its diversity, uh, you know, over the past decades. This isn't necessarily a recent thing, um, but as we get more diverse, our food gets more diverse, too. So uh, I think what we saw through the pandemic was uh, suddenly people couldn't go out to eat at their favorite restaurants, whether it was Tibetan food or Chinese food or, you know, whatever they, they were craving, um, and uh, started trying to cook those things at home, um, which I think is an amazing step towards uh, understanding those cuisines a little bit better, appreciating the complexity and, and often, you know, how labor-intensive some of the dishes and some of the ingredients are. Um, so I, I think it is lasting. It certainly lasted for us. we our business grew well, quite a bit. Well, this, of course, is the core of your business. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, 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 your your business from when I first talked to you until like recently has just skyrocketed. I mean, it's just uh, so well known that's, and so widespread. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, that's and how it you, feels. Staff, hmm? That's how it feels for us too. Is is it skyrocketed? Uh, you know, people were cooking at home a lot more through the pandemic. Uh, before that, we were we supplied a lot of restaurants, um, but these days most of our business is, is direct to consumer through our website because there's mm-hmm. so many more people cooking at home and and willing to take on the challenge of cooking a new dish or exploring a, a cuisine that's new to them through a cookbook or or the internet, but doing that at home rather than by eating out at restaurants. Now you you're also em- emphasizing producers here in the United States. So, for for example, yogurt from Ronnie Brook Farms, or jam from somebody called V Smiley in Vermont, or one of my very favorites myself is maple syrup from Ronamok. Yeah, we. Yeah. Why did you say that it wasn't appreciated in that article? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, so so I did I did list quite a few of the other food companies that I love. Uh, including the ones that you mentioned, Ronnie Brook Dairy in upstate New York, V Smiley Jams in Vermont, uh, Runamock Maple in Vermont. And uh, we also have done a, quite a few collaborations with those companies or some of those companies. And we, we have two infused maple syrups uh, that Runamock made using our spices, one with our royal cinnamon, so a cinnamon maple syrup, just sort of a perfect classic breakfast combination. And then the other flavor that we did was a smoked star anise flavored uh, or infused maple syrup. Oh, I don't um, think we got that one. We just did an interview that, with them a few months ago. Oh, great. Well, I'll send you a bottle uh, so you can try it. That that flavor has been a little bit more divisive, I think. I, I mean, personally, I love it. I think it's much more interesting, complex, versatile uh, than the cinnamon one. I have the, the star anise one in my fridge right now, but I don't have the cinnamon one, if that tells you anything. Um, but it just has not sold nearly as well. I think the cinnamon outsells it, I don't know, 7 to 1 or 10 to 1. Um, and I think some of that is because not everybody loves uh, the anise flavor profile. Licorice uh, is kind of a divisive flavor sometimes. But um, but also I think it's a little bit, uh, it just takes a little more thought, um, you know, to consider how the, the star anise flavor is going to 
come together with whatever else you might be cooking. But I actually, I love it as a savory ingredient in kind of a, a sauce or a glaze for meat or, or roasted veggies. It, it adds so much uh, complexity. Makes a mean cocktail, too. That, too, <laughs> definitely. It really does. I, I discovered another bottle of, of, a, of the bottles that they sent us when we did it, when we did our interview with them. I discovered a, one in the back of the cupboard. I, I can't remember what it's called, but it's delicious. And my, my yeah. formula is uh, granola in the bottom <laughs> with, with, with some cream top milk poured over it to sort of loosen it up a little bit. <laughs> then, then, then a couple of spoonfuls of yogurt in the middle of the whole thing, and then some runamuck maple syrup drizzled over that top of that. <laughs> and it's Sounds got almost, great. It's got, it's got almost no calories. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if the ordinary people with ordinary metabolism would, would be eating that every morning, you should be sure of it for tents to wear. <laughs> no, no, my, my, my wife and my doctor both teamed up to say that I was losing too much weight, so I needed to put, in, put on some more. So that's one of my reactions to doing that. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I have one question that I've always been dying to ask you, actually, is um, you've come a long way in tasting different spices from different places and different conditions and so forth. Um, do you have a couple that really stand out as big revelations and expansion of your palate? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. One that I have really come to love over the last couple of years is a spice called a Timur pepper, T-I-M-U-R. Um, we get it from Nepal. Uh, it's fairly new to our lineup as well. Um, it's a relative of a Sichuan peppercorn. Uh, so it has a little bit of that sort of numbing, tingly effect that a Sichuan peppercorn has, although not quite as strong. And it has um, a really incredible sort of citrus and, and herbal aroma. It smells like grapefruit. Really? Uh, it smells like fresh herbs, a really, really interesting um, set of flavors and, and aromas in a single, you know, a single plant, a single fruit. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think it's a dried flower, but not a fruit. In any case, uh, just, just that level of complexity in, in one ingredient is really special. Um, another one that, that I always come back to is that smoked star anise from Vietnam. Um, it's grown by two cousins, actually more harvested. The trees have been around a long time. And, smoked anise? Uh, they, uh, I'm sorry? Smoked what? The smoked star anise from Vietnam. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's grown sorry. by two oh, cousins. Um, and about. then the winter harvest, there are two harvests throughout the year, but a summer harvest and a winter harvest. And the winter harvest, because it's kind of cold and rainy at the time of the harvest, uh, they have to smoke the star anise fruits. Um, in order to dry them. They can't dry them in the sun because there's no sun. So uh, in addition to all of that uh, starny uh, aroma and flavor, which is very complex on its own, it's tart, it's nutty, it's sweet, it's savory, but then oh. there's also this element of smoke on top of it. Um, oh, it's probably the single one. most complex uh, ingredient I've ever tasted. You can just you know, pop a, a petal of the star into your mouth and chew on it, um, it also has, wow. uh, and, and it's just, it's really incredible. It also has some additional benefits. Um, star anise, uh, 
uh, provides some of the active ingredients in uh, cough syrups. It's really good for your throat and for um, cold oh, really? and, and yeah, things like that. So uh, there are some of them. We know some of your spices we become um, really addicted to that they're sort of part of the routine larder. And um, one of them is the uh, black lime. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Just regular old green limes. Well, you know, I tried to make that once. I mean, because we, we, we learned about that from, um, and, oh, where was it, in England, a chef. It was, it was a two Michelin star restaurant in in the southwest of the country called Le Champ, Champignon Sauvage. Oh, yeah, was Champignon in, was in, Sauvage. It was, was in Cheltenham. Somehow some they lost a star, but they... And it was a fabulous place. We had a wonderful lunch there, and we were introduced to black lime. And then, and most of the rest, the rest of the story is very sad for black limes. Yeah, I tried to make black limes, and I mean, it's not all that easy, you know. And it takes a long time. And uh, yeah. I, I was well on my way with with one batch, and uh, I, I was getting ready to actually be able to use them. And um, my house cleaner threw them away. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. So now I could get them in a jar from you guys. <laughs> right, exactly. And we get them from a farm in Guatemala. Uh, they um, start with green limes that get rinsed and then dried in the sun. And there's a process where they sort of tent them in plastic to let them, uh, uh, for the sort of the humidity to let them oxidize. And then they dry them and then grind them, so we carry it as a powder, which um, is, okay, is not uh, less but a much easier way to use them. Yeah, the, uh, I, I can't quite imagine. I've never tried the, your rum, but I can imagine that the dried, jarred, um, the um, ramps, and what was the other one? Uh, scapes, garlic scapes. I can't yeah. imagine they'd be any good. And then you have a new garlic one that came out. <laughs> they're, well, they're both very good. They are? <laughs> the, ramps, the ramps are wild. Um, I don't, you know, ramps are a, a wild uh, alley. Oh, no, we have, I mean, we garlic. live in a part of the country that, uh, that, that waits, uh, that, you know, <laughs> panic-stricken to, to get their ramps right. when it's short season. And there's a ramp right. festival in, in um, West Virginia even. Um, but I can't imagine them dried. I mean, they're fresh when we get them. They they dry really well. Uh, we we only harvest the leaves, uh, and then we truck them overnight to a drying facility that we work with a whole lot, and they dehydrate them. So, you know, within 24 hours or less of being harvested, they're in the dehydrator, um, and and they come out great. They're really savory and garlicky and uh, yeah. Green. They they smell a little bit like you know the the woods in springtime. Sort of a a loamy, rich smell. Or really, they're they're okay. delicious. And okay. and you know for all of the people who either like me live in cities or who are not lucky enough to live in ramp growing areas of the country, <laughs> um, it's pretty handy to be able to get your hands on a, a jar of dried ramps. So yeah. it's not it's not tr- it's not true that people hate Joe Manchin because he smells of ramps. <laughs> I think they hate him for other reasons. More, more, more well deserved. Well, as always, I mean, you're you're just so full of information and and so interesting to talk to, Ethan Frisch. Um, again, uh, listeners, it's Burlap and Barrel, and while you're at it, you should probably go on the website, uh, which is. Um, 
burlap and spelled out barrel.com and sign up also if you want some excitement in your life sign up for the spice club which is a wonderful opportunity to to expand your experience ethan now that you're a celebrity please promise you'll continue talking to us (laughs) i would i would love that thank you for having me it's been great to talk to you as always yeah thanks ethan bye-bye thanks I'm so in love with my cast iron skillets and pots and Dutch ovens. I was happy to find somebody else so much in love with it that um, they wrote a whole cookbook on how to use it. Um, Actually, they specified baking, which is something I don't do a lot of. Um, Roxanne Weiss and Kathy Moore, and they wrote the best cast iron baking book so for those of you who are bakers, this is going to be absolutely an essential reference for you. So listen in. Yeah, well, this is a, a subject we're going to be talking about that's very close to my heart because um, I, like many other people, inherited my grandmother's cast iron baking um, um, pants. Um, so we, we have a book, however, by Roxanne Weiss and Kathy Moore, who have worked together on many, many um, books. How many books, you two? This is Kathy, and this is like 18 books, and we have a long <laughs> career of working together. <laughs> well, you can tell. It. It's very smooth, uh, very smoothly written. Um, now, the, I, I'm going to give you the correct title for this book, listeners, The Best Cast Iron Baking Book. And I want to emphasize that you you may have a lot of um, other kinds of cast iron um, workhorses in your kitchen, but you may not have really realized the full um, the capabilities of these for making breads, pies, biscuits, and more. And that's what this book is about. And I have to admit, I mean, I've lived with these cast iron pots forever and ever and ever, and I never, ever thought of baking in one. <laughs> so this was a revelation. Um, the, let's talk about the book itself. And I think one of the, the important aspects of it is you actually start off, right, with how to actually take care of it, because I think that's the one thing that puts people off. I mean, I, I gave... Our son and daughter-in-law, a um, a lodge cast iron skillet, and they said, "Ew, it's all rusty." <laughs> well, it wasn't all rusty when I gave it to them because you know lodge pre seasons their pots, whereas my grandmother's pots, their pans, or skillets, or a Dutch oven I have too. Um, they, they were never pre-seasoned. You have to do that yourself. But you explain how it's not that hard, is it? it? This is Kathy. No, it isn't hard. And we always tell people just start using it and be sure it's really dry, and you will develop that great shiny surface that you, um, the nonstick feel of, a, of the cast iron. Uh, but in case you need it, yes, we do go through the seasoning. And basically, if you take just a small amount of, if, and like a just vegetable oil, something that has no flavor or aroma, 
and rub it all over the the pan. I mean, inside, outside, handles, you know, just oh, a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. And then put it upside down in an oven at 350 degrees for an hour. Then turn off the oven and just let it cool overnight, and you'll begin to build up that seasoning process. Um, so put it over another pan or over, uh, you know, the rack so that if it'll catch anything that drips. But just like you said, most pans that are sold today are pre-seasoned. Yes. Now, uh, I thought, thought you'd be interested in this little story. Uh, we have um, a person who owns uh, clubs, you know, like music venues and that kind of thing, two of them. And during the pandemic, he couldn't um, book any artists. And he had all this time on his hands. So um, he comes from a small Pennsylvania town that uh, produces a certain brand of cast iron cookware that's distinguished by having on the bottom of the pan a cross. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I have one of them. I don't know the name of it, but at any rate, uh, so in his t- when his um, downtime, uh, he started researching and he started picking up all of these uh, pans at, at flea markets and and you know rumble shops and things like that, and and actually very professionally refinishing them to make them totally shiny, glossy, and non-stick again. But his, I mean, it, it, his procedure was very elaborate. He had, had things to do with lye, um, you know, firing it with lye or something like that. But he got huge amounts of money because people collect this stuff now. Oh, Did absolutely, you know they do. Yes, yeah. this is Roxanne, and yes, they do. And they're they're like you said, they're handed down and they're just revered by by many. Well, the uh, I, I, what about the technique? I mean, he I know that lye was involved with the, one of the processes. This is Kathy, and you know, if you just pick up um, a cast iron pan, like you said, at a flea market or something, it might have a little bit of rust. And in extreme conditions, you could soak it in um, like a vinegar water, and we do include how to do that. But yeah. you know, most pans, if you um, eat, you could even use a little steel wool or a brush and scrub it really well, and then you could go on and begin to build up the seasoning and use it daily, you'll find that (laughs) you won't ever have to go back to the lie. Because like you said, some people get shy and think that they're hard to take care of when in actuality they're not. No, I mean, I I find mine just perfectly all right. I I never did anything elaborate except for what you described. Um, Yeah, and... But the, I mean, I, I, I don't know that they're totally nonstick. But um, he would spend, according to him, like ten dollars on a skillet, and sell it for like a thousand to collectors. He did a lot of West Coast stuff. I mean, like sending it to people buyers collecting from the West Coast. So I mean, that's sort of amazing, isn't it? 
This is Roxanne, and it is. And that just ties in with the popularity of cast iron cooking right now. It's very, uh, very popular, and people want to know more about it. And people have started using their cast iron, which is exciting. And Kathy and I had such fun. We, of course, always use our cast iron for frying or uh, making our dinners, but when we started baking in the cast iron, the nature of the cast iron loses itself to a very crisp crust, if you like a crisp crust on your baked products, but the center is soft and, and delicious. Well, that brings us to um, the question of why bother (laughs) cooking what are the advantages you have this um, introduction called the thrill and passion of cooking with cast iron talk a little bit about that if you would this is kathy we think there is a passion and roxanne and i have it that's for sure um as she said the Edges are going to be crisp and delicious like nothing else you've had, and the insides are moist or chewy or delicious. But also just those pans are so durable, and, you you know, they're versatile. You could put them in a preheated oven or you could put them back on the stove. Um, They're just so durable that you can use them in a variety of settings. And they improve with age. So that yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd ever know what to do without them. I mean, they've been so much a part of my life for so long. They're a little heavier. I read where they're the the, the modern ones they're making is not quite so heavy. But I, I I sort of feel that the heaviness is part of the appeal. Sweetheart, don't don't you remember when you were when you were expecting Adam, and you were seeing the doctor. Oh, yeah. and, the doctor was amazed at the high level of iron in your yeah. blood. I had the highest hemoglobin count of any pregnant woman he had ever seen. <laughs> and I, I swear that's because I cook in, in the cast iron. Well, it is a very, very treasured method. And I know Kathy and I grew up with our mothers, uh, our memories of our moms using cast iron. And, in fact, uh, they've been handed down from grandma to moms. And it's just a wonderful way to cook and not have to worry about scratching or uh, really ruining your cast iron. It's just very versatile. Right. Very good, very good for make, very good for making omelets. Very good for frying eggs. Yeah. <laughs> both, yeah. Both of which I am the expert around here. Yeah, yeah you, you are. are just yeah. about anything else. But. So, um, you, you have a list of the benefits of cast iron cookware. Do you want to mention some of that? Uh, this is Kathy, absolutely. Um, as we said, how versatile and how durable they are, and, you know, they retain heat. So once they heat up, um, if you've got that warm, delicious cornbread in that skillet, you can take it right over and serve it, and it will help keep it warm. Many people are Many avoiding pe- not. Pardon? Go ahead. Many people are avoiding nonstick cooking or nonstick cookware. Um, they've seen it chip off or just don't find it as durable. And you never have to worry with, about that with cast iron. Um, so obviously it's the delicious food, but there are many benefits. Yeah, the health benefits you say too. 
Yes, um, because many people do want to avoid that nonstick coating. And so to be able to have a material that's going to be so durable and not pose any health concerns is a real treasure. Right. I, 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 have this, I developed my technique for bro- broiling steaks, strip steaks and other fine pieces of meat. And I, and I browned them on the top of the stove and then I, and then I put them in the oven for like five minutes one side, five minutes the other side. And it, and it, it produces a steak that is so delicious. I mean, it's. I think that um, once you got used to the timing in them, you, you have. I mean, it's faster, isn't it? It. This is Roxanne. It can be because it does hold the heat very, very well, and that is a great. That's in fact, that's the way many restaurants do their steaks, and. Um, I like to do mine where I preheat my cast iron skillet in a 500-degree oven for a long time, carefully bring it out of the oven, put the steak in it, and sear it off, too, to get a nice, crisp brown crust. And I also do it the way that you mentioned, and perfect vehicle for cooking steak and getting that nice, browned edge that we like. Yeah. You know, what, what and you can use it out on the grill, too. I thought that was kind of interesting. This is Kathy. Yes, you can. I mean, like we said, many uh, a scout grew up using it on uh, a particular Dutch oven out on the open fire. You can put them on a grill. Um, many of us have several cast iron skillets just in Dutch ovens so that we can use some on a grill or some on, for baking. Um, so, yes, they are just very versatile. Yeah, I, I think that the, the people like Steve Reichlin and Meathead and a few other stars at the barbecue circuit call what we just described reverse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is Roxanne. And then if you transfer that to baking. Reverse sear. Reverse sear. Yes, reverse sear. And that's, that's what we learned when we were doing so much baking, that what a beautiful crust on a cobbler or a pie. And, and we love the crisp crust on a biscuit we we grew up in the midwest where biscuits and gravy were were pretty common and the biscuits with that nice crisp crust but then when you cut into it and ladle the gravy over it it just makes a delicious uh biscuit that you really can't replicate without using cast iron don't you agree kathy yes absolutely you can't you cannot (laughs) duplicate it and once you get into baking with cast iron you're not going to hardly want to ever go back. In fact, Roxanne and I teach many classes on cast iron cooking, and yet we did all of, you know, some of the traditional, like she just mentioned, the biscuits and gravy. And we found so many people had questions on baking. And once, you know, once we started writing the book and able to answer those questions, it was thrilling for us because people are eager to know how to use their skillets or their Dutch oven for baking. You um, you then go in, let's not skip over this, um, the, the actual contents of it because people are going to be surprised about what all you can do with these pans. Um, yeah, I've always meant to try it, and no need 
and bread that I never have because I like the kneading part. <laughs> but you have a ton of, and that's kind of the modern approach to, to making bread, right? This is Roxanne. Oh, this this is my sweet spot with cast iron. Uh, okay. The pandemic was part of what created all of this, but the the no-knead bread that we bake, you really mix it up the night before and allow it to sit on the counter and then use a cast iron a Dutch oven with a lid and bake the bread off, and it makes an artisan-type loaf that really just can't be beat. And honestly, I make about um, – I have to admit, I have to be honest, I make this about twice a week, and we slice it and have it for toast in the morning. It's just a delicious <laughs> bread for toast and sandwiches, but very easy to do. And and since our book has come out, we've had so many people send us pictures and been so excited that now they can bake bread. It may not be what you and I grew up as when we said we made bread with the, the yeast, but it's so easy to do, and it's very foolproof. No, um, the one thing I was not sure about is I can't quite picture uh, doing a two-crust pie in one of these. This is Kathy. A two-crust pie is wonderful. And, in fact, um, if you you make them, uh, we use about a 10-inch skillet in almost all of these recipes, just a 10-inch skillet or the Dutch oven. So in a 10-inch skillet, it's going to be a little bigger than your standard 9-inch pie pan. But what is wonderful then is you have plenty. So if you're having a family reunion or a holiday meal, you'll have plenty. The bottom crust is going to be so crisp and delicious. You can't beat it. And then there's plenty of room for the fruit filling. And then you put the crust over the top, and again, it bakes to just absolute perfection. So you'll have to try it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I really am not sure about the shape. Some of these things, to me, some of the recipes don't make sense because of the shape. Like, um, what are some of the the uh, some some of the cookies and things? This is Roxanne. We love the cookies done in the cast iron skillet, and here's the reason why, for me anyway. It's easy and quick to do them, but then you can cut them into uh, squares, and some of them are little triangles, but the serving side, it serves so many, and it's a very easy way to get a lot of cookies out of one pie pan, or excuse me, cast iron skillet, which is then resembling a pie pan. So very similar to... uh, a round eight inch dish or a ten inch dish, if you will. Some of your your recipes are kind of whimsically attractive, such as your giant skillet cinnamon roll. I love that. <laughs> Tell us about that. Who who would envision a ten inch cinnamon roll? This is Kathy, and it is fun. But can't you imagine when everyone is at your house for a holiday meal or, you know, if you have those kids that are all at the sleepover and your kids are playing, to bring out one giant cinnamon roll? Sounds delicious. That <laughs> would be fun. Yeah, I, I like the strawberry rhubarb skillet coffee cake, too. That one is a favorite also. It, again, I know it sounds a little bit redundant, but what we're trying to get across is this cast iron gives you such a nice outer crust, and then the inside is still a a moist and delicious uh, 
coffee cake or a cobbler. So you kind of get the best of both wor- worlds. You know how for a while they were there was a, a dish that was popular that you could always get the corner, you get the crisp corner. Oh, yeah, well, exactly. The beauty of cast iron is you get both. And um, if you're not real fond of the crisp, that's okay. You can cut your piece from the center. <laughs> so what? what are, after testing all of these recipes, what did you decide was your most fam- favorite um, use? Like deep dish or... Um, this is Kathy, and, and I know it's going to sound trite, but which of your children are, the, are your favorite? Because oh, once you try that crisp crust, you're going to think, oh, I never want a, a pizza or focaccia any other way. Um, of course, all those sweet rolls and the pies. Uh, I love cornbread in it. Um, yeah, cornbread know. makes a lot of sense. I think that one makes sense. You know? but I'm, not, I'm not sold on the... Um, uh, snickerdoodle bars. <laughs> oh, those are one of my favorites because they're a bar cookie with all the flavor of a snickerdoodle cookie. So there's just a variety and a, a recipe for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly uh, delve into potential with, and I mean, I like the fact that you can, instead of having specific uh, you, uh, pots or pans for every single thing you're going to be doing. You have uh, the versatility with with your cast iron um, baking. Um, I mean, you, you could get away with a skillet in the Dutch oven, right? Absolutely. This is Roxanne, absolutely. And another thing that we are actually teaching a, a class tomorrow night, and we're making the snickerdoodle cookies. So uh, we'll let you know what the class thinks of that. But I want to tell us about it. Which is why we do it. But I do want to tell you a little a little story about when we teach our classes. We've mentioned how precious the cast iron is to us both. It was handed down from our mothers and our grandmothers. And when we started to teach the classes, I said to Kathy, oh, my goodness, I don't want to end up with your cast iron skillet at the end of the night and you with mine. How can we mark these skillets? This was family. You know, this is tradition. And Kathy is brilliant, as always, and she had this great idea. Every one of her cast iron skillets, if you know it's on a cast iron skillet, there's a little loop in the handle, and yes. she has a little piece of a wire that she has twisted <laughs> on that loop. So we teach lots of classes, and now we can go and rest assured that I end up with mine and she ends up with hers, and uh, the class <laughs> always has great fun. That's a great story. Well, again, listeners, get this book, and you'll have a whole another adventure in baking. It's called The Best Cast Iron Baking Book, and the authors are longtime cookbook authors and, and um, cooking teachers, Roxanne Weiss and Kathy Moore. And you know the stuff, these recipes have been thoroughly tested. Thank you, too, for talking to us. Thank you so much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Um, we're going to be looking at baking again, not you, however, um, but where you can buy bagels on the West Coast, we're going to be talking to a mother-daughter duo, Angelina McLean and Francesca 
Americana, and they have a, a, a business called um, Little Shop, Shop, I'm sorry, Bagels, or Wagon Bagels. Um, they mentioned a little bit about that in our interview. Uh, so listen to these two ladies talk about introducing New York bagels to the West Coast. Off you go. Now, our next guests are actually on the West Coast, which is not the first thing that comes to your mind when you're talking about bagel traditions, but that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> We're talking to Angelina McLean and uh, her mother, Francesca Ferradicano, and um, they're in, do we call it Southern Oregon? Yes. Okay. And um, it, it, it's kind of an odd thing. How did you end up starting both a, a, a retail store and a frozen um, retail product having to do with making bagel, bagels? Uh, this is this is Francesca, and um, I started in 1994, and um, I just started in like like a 200 square foot building in Ashland, Oregon, and I really wanted to make bagels and be close to where my kids are. We're going to school, and um, I just basically practiced and practiced until I got what I thought was um, the right kind of bagel. And, uh, well, why bagels? The why bagels? Well, I mean, it, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. Um, well, because I was a bread home home bread baker when my kids were oh. little, and um, I I heard that I never had a bagel before, and I heard that bagels were boiled and you put them in a water bath, and I had to, had to figure out how to do that. <laughs> I, I just could not believe you could put dough in the water and it wouldn't fall apart. Ah. <laughs> So, but but you also know you have to have a schmear, right? Oh, of course, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely, the works. Well, was it a hard sell? Uh, I mean, Oregonians are pretty independent people, um, and and they have their own traditions. Were bagels a hard sell? Actually, um, it it wasn't. I was kind of surprised um, because... When I started, there was another bagel company in town, and uh, I and I just felt like I could make a better product that I thought was was a better bagel, and the uh-huh. town just supported me. And it it was during the time when it was a bagel boom, but I didn't I had no idea that that was happening. I just needed to make a living, doing what I love to do, and and it just people were walking in, you know, saying, "Wow, these bagels are great," you know. So I, I just I was kind of clueless. I just kind of just jumped in and just started making them by hand. Did you go sample a lot of East Coast bagels in the process? I no, I did not sample any East Coast bagels for about five years into my business when somebody went to the East Coast and came back with a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> not even a hot bagel. <laughs> it's really fun. No, I, I just I just you know I'm a bread baker uh, from just like you know. Uh, I, I learned how to make pizza from my mother, and my, that was from my grandmother. So I think it was in my blood. And then uh-huh. um, growing up in San Francisco, we lived near a, uh, a bakery, and I went on a field trip probably when I was about six or seven, and watched you know them make bread. And I think that was uh-huh. a big influence for me. Yeah. 
Now, let's clarify that your retail shop is called Little Shop of Bagels, and the actual uh, retail brand is Wake and Bagels, which is Wake, W-A-K-E, hyphen, capital N, hyphen, bagels. So, well, you know some of the backstory. I mean, what was exactly the, the first thing you did? You started making, finding out how to make bagels. Then you started to see if anybody would buy them in farmers markets. Yes, I, I um, worked inside a, a coffee shop and I, I just started hand rolling them. And there was two supermarkets, a, a, a co-op and, a, and another supermarket, and they let me put jars in there. And I started just seeing how that went. And oh. people were, and I was working another job while I was doing that just to see if that would fly. People liked them, and, yeah, it just kind of, I think I was in the right place at the right time. Well, you seem to be really happy with where you ended up, huh? Oh, yes. I've been very fortunate. I'm very grateful. Now, um, let's talk about, I mean, I have not experienced the little shop of bagels, um, but we've been eating your frozen bagels. Um, You have really specific instructions for, for thawing them and baking them. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is Angelina. Um, and so the reason why we uh, we decided to, to have a frozen Wake and Bagel product was because we had a lot of people, our, our shop has grown over the years to be pretty quite busy um, and people we have a lot of tourists that come through our area and they were asking us how can we get your bagels where we live up in the you know oh. Washington area or in down in California and so this was Francesca's solution to um, to bringing our products without putting preservatives or selling what we consider a subpar product which is you know we want it to be the that fresh bagel shop experience that that we give our customers, um, and so she developed, or we, we, she brought, came to me with the idea, and we developed the, the idea of how to, to bring that into customers' homes so that you can actually experience that really fresh bagel shop bagel at home. So with that comes, a, you know, a little bit of instructions. Uh, so, yeah, you do need to thaw the bagels out before you bake them, and uh, we just made new packaging, so the... Um, the packaging that you were sent, I, I think we sent you the older stuff. So there's two, uh, two now two, two different instructions for our new packaging, which is you can either lay it uh, overnight in your, in your refrigerator to thaw, um, 8 to 14 hours, or if you want to, you can thaw it on your countertop for 1 to 2 hours, depending on um, air temperature, until the bagel is soft and thawed out and just slightly cool. See, that would be better because otherwise yeah. you have to think ahead. Because I've been yes, using right. the old instructions, and and you yes. have to remember to put it in the in the um, refrigerator overnight. Right, and so this kind of bypasses that. Where if you're like, ooh, I want a bagel in an hour or two, but I forgot to take them out, we um, yeah, we've changed the instructions to to reflect that, so you can do that as well. Okay, and and then for and, baking, yeah, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean for for baking, um, I, I, it seemed. You know, everything seemed about right. It took us a little bit longer, but every oven, as you pointed out, is different. Yes, every every oven and even every refrigerator might be a little bit cooler or warmer, and so those are all things that are variables. But I would say that the um, 
you know, it's mostly just kind of checking the, the bagels, um, getting a little bit of that golden brown crust. If you separate them a little bit on your baking sheet, they'll get more circulation and cook really nice and evenly. So there's a little bit of a, a tiny bit of an art to it, but, um, but once you, once you nail it for your oven temperature, it, it works out great. And we've had a lot of customers contact us that, that have told us, wow, these are fabulous, you know, to have a, a fresh, fresh baked bagel at home, um, you know. And the, and the toaster oven works really good. It really no, I don't have I don't have a toaster oven. <laughs> I used to. I don't have one anymore. I have so many appliances. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Can you do anything in an air fryer? Because somebody sent me one of those, but I haven't used it yet. <laughs> I think you can put the air fryer on bake, and you can you can use it. Really, I have to look at it. Yeah. I haven't even taken it out of the box. So, um, there's so many different kitchen appliances out there now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a I have a um, what do you call it a multi cooker, and and it even does sous vide. I mean, I can't. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, to me, it's basically. A pressure cooker is what I think of it as, the multi-cooker. Right. So now, that and the slow how, cooker. How, how, does a, how does a bagel lover approach Waken Bagels? I mean, it's, 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 it seems like in New York City you, you have to go to a bagel shop because there, there isn't another way to go about obtaining a bagel. Yeah, well, we're trying to solve that problem with Waken Bagel. Essentially, you know, someone who really appreciates what a good bagel tastes like, what an authentic bagel tastes like, not something that's, you know, kind of just glorified bread with a hole in it that hasn't been (laughs) produced in the authentic way that East Coasters would understand. Um, So having that at home, because maybe you don't have a good bagel shop near where you live or you don't want to go somewhere that morning. You just want to be able to be at home and have a nice brunch. You can solve that problem. uh, Why was it that we had to buy bagels when we were with Michael and Bridget in Paris? Oh, it was... No, I got the... I got the task of bagelling. <laughs> of finding bagels in Paris. That was uh, funny. <laughs> well, uh, uh, obtaining bagels to fry in Paris, which is just, just not something they do there. <laughs> they, fry the, well, they fry the bagels? No, they, they, they had oh. to find a bagel in oh, Paris. Okay. They, yeah, they didn't yeah, fry a bagel. We, yeah, they had lots of no, we had. We were staying with friends who... We were staying with friends who had an apartment in Paris, and it was mm-hmm. about the time that Obama won the presidential election. And they thought it was a good play on words and a good excuse for um, a brunch. And they had yeah. an a, uh, Obama O'Bagel brunch. So that meant we had to then find bagels in Paris, uh-huh. which was not an easy thing. No, no. As, as well as the uh, the accompaniments, the um, schmear, <laughs> you got to have the, the uh, cream cheese and you got to have the uh, lox. You could get lox there, but, uh, you know, no, the, even the, cream the, cheese was a stretch. The, 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 ba- the bagels were very expensive, shall we say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. And, and un- un- unlike Waken bagels, they were not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but I think that the people we had there weren't all that keen on bagels. <laughs> they didn't know anything about bagels, all these French people. <laughs> a 
what it, I forgot about that altogether. <laughs> that was the trip, wasn't it? Um, now, how many different kinds do you have now? So uh, we started out with our um, our plane, our everything, which we call hyper, yeah. and That's what we're uh, just onion. Eating. Yeah, the everything is the runaway favorite by far, um, and then planes in a close second place. And then we also, we just launched our raisin cinnamon, which for some people, oh, yeah. you know, they're like, raisin they like cinnamon, that. I, I could know do that, that to a bagel. But there's a lot of people who do really love to have a sweet version, and, and, and ours is, you know, we use organic ingredients and really high-quality ingredients, so um, there's, you know, real raisins in there, and they're not all tiny little bits or whatever. So, um, so yeah, we're really excited to have um, shared that fourth flavor on our lineup, and those will hopefully be in stores pretty soon. Which, right. which, is, which is the one that has what looks like sprinkles? From so, the, yeah, that would be the Hiker Bagel, the Hiker Everything. And okay. we, call that, we call it a hiker because my mother had a, a business partner friend way back in the early beginning stages of her bagel shop who, who uh, said it would be the perfect bagel to take on a hike. And so, <laughs> uh, with this, yeah, the kosher salt and all the seeds and everything, and so that name just, that name just stuck. <laughs> now, you started to say, um, the, the distinctions of yours, because there are these kind of more um, natural, um, real ingredients and things that you use. Tell us about what what kinds of things you actually promote about your particular bagels. Right, absolutely. So this is Angelina again. Um, so our bagels have always been made with organic flour and grains ever since the very beginning. That's always been something that we felt really strongly about. Francesca was, um, it was always very important to her. Um, we don't have any preservatives or anything artificial. We keep all of our ingredients really clean. Um, there's no, there's no sugar. Uh, the only thing that we, we use barley malt and, um, it's not corn, it's barley malt. So that, that's the traditional oh, that's way of making bagels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Um, yeah, and then our process is, a, is an artisan process um, and uh, authentic. You know, we we boil our bagels, and um, so you get that great chew and texture that a good bagel is known for. And uh, and yeah, so we've been kind of um, putting these uh, products in markets currently that the customers really appreciate that. So places like Whole Foods. Um, markets are are the kind of markets that we've been doing really well in. Yeah, so that's my, my last question is about availability. How do people mm-hmm. get your bagels? The people who are not yeah. lucky enough to live there near the <laughs> little bagel shop. Right. So, yeah, we being that we um, we've still only are in our first couple years of this, um, we're focusing on the West Coast. Um, and so right now we're in Oregon and Washington um, and in places like Whole Foods, Metropolitan Markets, Market of Choice, um, and then some other, um, you know, specialty retailers in the area. Um, our plan – oh, and we're also in Hong Kong, <laughs> randomly uh, – City superstores, um, and Why we're Hong working Kong? on. Well, we just had a customer that thought that our product would go really well there, and so that's a high-end. Um, they're high-end supermarkets over there, and uh, I guess they're interested in bagels and good in good bagels. <laughs> so 
who knew? Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, but our plan is to expand into California, and that's what we're working on right now. So once we kind of cover the West Coast, then we can talk about you going know, east. Yeah, expanding so you, further. You can't order them off the website then. You know, unfortunately, shipping costs are just so outrageously expensive oh, that me about I don't that think idea. anyone would really want to pay that. Um, and uh, and because our product is, you know, unbaked, it's real sensitive to temperature, so we have to ship it, you know, really quickly to get it anywhere. And so at this point, it just doesn't make sense to direct ship to customers. Um, but you never know. Things could change down the road. <laughs> Yeah, well, or they can, I mean, they can talk my on a suggestion, plane. My suggestion would be make a friend in uh, in Oregon. <laughs> right there, you go. That's right. Yeah, yeah we when I had a um, a panic uh, over having to part with what did I call those those Mexican sugar cookies? Oh, the alligator cookies. The alligator cookies, they, they shape, they're shaped like an alligator. That's not what they're really called. But Peter had a colleague, a business colleague uh, in, in California, in Southern California, who in Los Angeles, who could go and, and get them for me. But again, it ended up being a pretty expensive uh, operation, having to airlift these cookies who FedExes an alligator cookie, for heaven's sake? <laughs> if it's good, you'll do it. <laughs> well, well, it's so good to, to talk to somebody who's really having a good time doing something that they love and uh, produces a good product. So, again, listeners, it's, um, it's going to come to someplace, a store near you. In the meantime, you better make friends with somebody in uh, southern uh, Oregon, and what you want is wake and bake bagels, and you'll be very happy you did. So, Angelina and Francesca, uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Anne, and thank you, um, Peter. Okay. Yeah, we really appreciate being able to talk to you guys today. Well, it was fun. Thank you. That's gone pretty quickly. We're now at the end of our hour. And so we want to say, tune in again next week. Same time, same place. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.